When I think of I-4, there is one specific spot that always comes to mind. If you live anywhere along the I-4 corridor, I'm sure you have a spot that perfectly indicates your feelings and anxieties toward the road. Mine is going westbound, just on the other side of downtown Orlando, right as you're about to reach the intersection with 408. The road itself does this curve, just a slight veering off of a straight path. However, the lanes in the road swerve much more drastically, essentially making like an S shape with four lanes of traffic moving in a serpentine fashion in unison. It's also right near the 408 intersection, which is notoriously traffic heavy and almost always backs up onto the interstate. All that combines to make an incredibly stressful driving experience. There are bits and pieces like this all over the interstate. Spots where there is a sudden drop and your car rocks like it's a roller coaster. Parts where the barriers are so close to the lanes that you're terrified you may lose your side mirrors. The intersection where Celebration exits westbound is always, always a slowdown. Just before Tampa, if you're in the left lane going either way, there are these bumps in the road that, if you're unaware of their presence, just give you this impression that you are literally driving off of the road. Traffic and backups appear out of nowhere for seemingly no reason, and worst of all, if you're driving home late at night, some exits are just closed, with no warning forcing you to reroute. In fact, the whole interstate is going under this massive rerouting known as the I-4 Ultimate Project. The project is chopping and screwing the highway, adding new lanes, removing old ramps, adding new entrances, and fundamentally reshaping the focal corridor of Central Florida. For many, it's a nightmare living inside of this construction zone. For others, and for the Floridians of the mid-20th century, I-4 was hope. Potentially this lifeline for all of Florida and beyond. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. It's the 30th episode, and it's time for a deep dive into Florida's iconic highway and the secrets hiding below the asphalt. I've been reading a fantastic book called Backroads of Paradise, A Journey to Rediscover Old Florida by Kathy Salastri. In it, Salastri travels along the smaller historic roadways of Florida to reconnect with the little hamlets and the mixed-up histories along our peninsula. She seeks to step away from the strip malls and the overbuilt spots, and instead she seeks to, quote, remain forever in search of that secret backwoods state with its sun-bleached roadside shacks, end quote. I like that. Salastri hops in her car and drives along old routes, reflecting on her own memories and histories of the places she finds. She even spends a little time discussing my favorite topic, Skunk Ape. It is a warm book, nostalgic for places that have long gone past, and celebrates how memory can be reflected in reality. For me, I don't need to travel anywhere in order to find I-4. I can literally see I-4 from my bedroom window. I am looking at it as I speak to you right now. I've been driving it my whole life and have traveled the length of it more times than I can count. It's the type of thing that is so familiar that you almost forget that it is a thing, like a historical thing or a thing that others aren't familiar with. That's one of the weirdest parts of I-4. I-4 can be so bad, but if you're so familiar with it, you forget that others don't have roads just as insane as this one. I'll never forget the first time that I myself drove on it, clinging to the right lane, shouting at every panicked moment, and eventually getting off at the literal next exit. Nowadays, a drive to Tampa is cake. I take the interstate to commute to work. I have driven on the interstate at dawn, at dusk, 
in the middle of the night, in the middle of rush hour traffic, filming a movie in the back seat with more passengers than could fit in the car, going on road trips, going on field trips, going on research trips, blasting music, blasting podcasts, talking way too loud, screaming out the window, coasting on the pedal because I'm almost out of gas, driving with one hand on the wheel because I'm eating a quick lunch, waving at the little buildings off the highway that I know are definitely haunted, and smiling at the Orlando skyline as I return home off the turnpike. I know this road. I know it. So to spare myself the additional irritation, I didn't follow Celastri's lead this time. I did not drive the length of I-4 just for this podcast. I hope that you can forgive me. If someone had to draw a connecting line tracing through every major point of culture and history in Central Florida, I imagine that that line would be drawn right along the route that Interstate 4 crosses through the state. Generally, it is defined as an east-west expressway, but the route is actually more diagonal following a northeastern path as it connects the Gulf of Mexico to the Atlantic Ocean. It begins in Tampa at a junction with Interstate 275, and the exits begin counting up, approximately 133 miles through Lakeland, Orlando, Sanford, and ending at Daytona Beach. It moves past historic cities like Eatonville and DeLand, past ecological treasures like the Green Swamp and Blue Springs State Park, past tourist attractions like Universal, SeaWorld, and Disney. There's these little exits and rest stops that pepper the roadway with bright flashy signs inviting you to stop and stay a while. Six separate counties are connected by I-4. Hillsborough, Polk, Osceola, Orange, Seminole, and Volusia. It intersects with the Florida Turnpike, I-75, the 408, and I-95 before petering off and ending in Daytona Beach and turning into State Road 400. Interstates like 75 and 95, they go north and they start to feel infinite, their full shape stretching out into this vast space that is the United States. But I-4 has a beginning and an end. You can drive the whole thing in just one day and see both the sunrise and the sunset. It is the best way to see our coasts, and it connects the state like a spine. However, over a period of five years, from 2011 to 2015, there were 165 deaths along I-4, a whopping 1.25 deaths per mile. That is the densest amount of deaths per mile in the country. Other interstates have more casualties, but I-4 isn't long, not by a long shot. The longest is I-90, and it doesn't even make the list. This legacy that has been stuck with I-4 is not indicative of the images we had for I-4 70 years ago. Back then, I-4 was an indicator that Orlando was growing. World War II ended and America was fit for a boom and a big one at that. In the mid-40s, a nationwide poll asked many where they would like to move. Two states led the pack, California and Florida. California was a bit more on the expensive end, but Florida was cheaper, and it sparked a brand new idea, the Florida dream. With the economy booming and the optimism of the 1950s surrounding our American culture, Florida was no longer just a vacation spot. Sure, people were still coming to us in hordes, but people were starting to settle down here, finding their space on our shores. In 1940, our state's population was just under 2 million at 1.8. In 1950, we had increased by almost a million, now sitting at about 2.77. However, the following decade changed everything. In the 50s, our population nearly doubled, and by 1960, we were at 4.95 million. 
1956 saw the signing of the Federal Aid Highway Act by President Eisenhower. Post-war America was investing in the American dream, so the ability to connect to other places and be able to travel to them was just part of it. But the executive branch saw another benefit, a crazy benefit, security from a nuclear threat. It was the mid-1950s and the Cold War was just starting to get brewing, and many believed that Americans could be safer to flee from dangerous areas if there was a quote-unquote net across the United States. The act would provide for 41,000 miles of highway and committed $26 billion. I-4 was a product of this act. The greater Orlando area needed to find better ways to process traffic and visitors. 1958 saw first ground being struck and a section of the interstate between Plant City and Lakeland opened the next year. I-4 was in business. Over the next few years, piece by piece, it started to assemble the St. John's River Bridge the connector into Orlando. By 1965, I-4 was complete, connecting the east coast of Florida all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, and it actually did. I-4 now ends at the edge of Tampa and is picked up by I-275, which connects Tampa to St. Petersburg, which is really on the Gulf of Mexico. That segment of I-275 was actually part of I-4 back then, so it really was a cross-state motorway. When I-75 expanded south, there was a reshuffling of the routes, and the official ending of I-4 fell at its current location. That means that our central means of transit has been exactly where it is for almost 55 years. When it was built, it was met with some controversy, as most things like this are, saying that a massive road would carve through their neighborhoods, effectively cutting some in half. This was much more common in cities up north, where large outcry from citizens stopped construction in its tracks. Here, however, countless cities in Orlando were split in half, some with no exits, and the outcry was minimal. So they were affected by the highway, but had no immediate access to the highway. This was the blessing and the curse of industrial development here, but for others, there was a concern that the construction would stomp on significant history of Central Florida. One legend, and one of my favorite legends, suggests that history may still be fighting back. The St. Johns River is the longest in the state, running for most of the East Coast and connecting several lakes along the way. One such lake is Lake Monroe, which sits right at the edge of Sanford. Sanford was the citrus hub of Central Florida, making it a bit of a gateway to the rest of the region. Named for and founded by Henry Shelton Sanford, the city was officially formed in 1877 with a prosperous spot on the St. Johns River and a connection to Flagler's East Coast Railway. Sanford the man, not the city, was a diplomat under President Abraham Lincoln, serving in Belgium. There, he met a Catholic priest named Felix Prosper Swemberg. A few years later, Sanford invited Swemberg to create a Catholic colony right on the shore of Lake Monroe in his booming new city. The priest accepted. After that, no one came. As far as we know, only a small German family of four arrived at the Monroe St. Joseph's Colony. By the late 1880s, yellow fever was sweeping through the state, killing thousands and effectively wiping out whole cities. Key West and Jacksonville still bear the scars of this epidemic. The little Catholic colony in Sanford didn't even stand a chance. The priest took ill and died in November of 1887 while traveling south to administer aid, and the rest of his colony, his little family of four, passed as well. They were buried on the grounds of their Florida homestead, 
Sanford himself died a few years later, and the citrus freezes of the early 1890s crippled the town of Sanford for many years to come. Legend states that those four little graves, the people who died from yellow fever, are still there, their bodies buried under the asphalt snake of I-4, right underneath an area known as the I-4 dead zone. Before I-4 was there, this area was literally called the Field of the Dead, as several ominous stories were connected to the spot, ranging from things moving with no explanation to a whole house burning down. Since I-4 was built, some reports shared that over a thousand accidents occurred in this spot, with some reports saying nearly 2,000 accidents. Some stories say that if you're driving at just the right time, in the middle of the night, you may see spirits standing on the side of the road asking for a ride, or your phone or your radio may suddenly lose signal, and you will feel the presence of those who were lost to yellow fever over a century ago. Now let me tell you, I can actually attest to this story, and I'm not kidding. Driving home from the East Coast one night a few years ago, I was driving through Sanford and I hit the bridge where the spirits supposedly haunt passers-by. I'd been driving the car at the time for close to four years, and I'd never had any radio problems. However, just after midnight, for the first time ever, as I passed over the bridge, my radio stopped transmitting sound for a full 15 second period as I crossed the bridge. That had never, ever happened before, not even for an instant. I won't make any assumptions or provide any explanations, but I will say that I freaked out for about a week after that and I'm freaking out a little bit right now. Regardless, no matter what you believe, there very well may be something below the bridge there. Forgotten souls with forgotten names just trying to reach out. But there is lots of prosperity from I-4. In the mid-60s when the road was being built, small companies and corporations started buying up land in the spot south of Orlando bordering I-4. This was unusual, they had weird names, no one had ever even heard of these companies, and they were all buying adjacent swampland in the middle of nowhere. By 1965, the Orlando Sentinel had cracked the case. It wasn't a bunch of weird random companies with unusual names, it was just one company, secretly buying land so that they would not be overcharged, because they were a pretty famous company that you've probably heard of. According to legend, it was November 22, 1963, the day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Walt Disney himself took a plane up over Orlando. I-4 was almost done, and right nearby, Walt saw this perfect spot to build his famous second park. He had been searching across the country for his next spot, looking at St. Louis, New Orleans, and even Palm Beach in Florida, but this flight along the I-4 corridor revealed the ideal spot. So using secret shell companies, using fake names, Walt bought the land up. He continued to keep it secret, hiding his trips, hiding the money, and working in secret from even the Florida government for some time. In the end, they had bought 27,000 acres of undeveloped land, and on November 15, 1965, along with the 35th governor of Florida, William Hayden Burns, Walt Disney made an announcement. Walt Disney, who will bring a new world of entertainment, pleasure, and economic development to the state of Florida. Walt Disney. Thank you, Governor. Called Project Florida, this announcement somehow intersected with the completion of Interstate 4 through Orlando. The first park, Magic Kingdom, opened in 1971. 
Waltz himself passed in 1966, never seeing the park completed, but he and his brother changed Florida in one fell swoop. The completion of a cross-state highway connecting 75 and 90 that ran all the way north and the creation of a massive theme park in the middle of the state was the exact boom that Florida was waiting for. It turned us from a small oasis tourist spot with unique beaches and forests to a tourism mecca, the largest tourism industry in the country. It was a one-two punch. Magic Kingdom, that first park, is the world's most visited theme park to this day, and all four parks combined have close to 56 million visitors per year. From 2008 to 2017, the total attendance was 1.35 billion. And nearly everyone gets there via our little interstate. To accommodate these tourists and the fact that Orlando is one of the top 10 cities in the country experiencing a massive population boom, I-4 needs a facelift. This facelift is called I-4 Ultimate and costs a whopping $2.3 billion and covers 21 miles of construction. Not all of I-4 is being renovated, it should be noted. It's really only the mess of Greater Orlando, which features countless piles of dirt from construction, uneven lanes, and roads disappearing literally overnight. This is not an easy task. It's a road, and it's a road that thousands upon thousands rely on every single day. If you've driven the road in the past few years, you've certainly noticed that sections are fundamentally changing. There are segments where whole new parts of the highway are being built as you're driving. Just north of Orlando and a route I travel constantly, there is an express exitway that connects four or five different exits, Fairbanks and Princeton and Lee. If you miss getting onto that express route, you miss all of those exits. If you don't get on at the beginning, the whole thing passes you by. Additionally, they're slowly constructing these express lanes, and that's express lane with a capital E and L. You will pay an additional toll and you would get to bypass local traffic. There are also plans to add these aesthetic elements, adding colorful pylons at overpasses and painting the names of cities in bold letters as you pass under. It's ambitious to say the least. You can see construction equipment you have never seen before in your life, such as this massive hole driller that raises this huge metal drill in the air and swings it back down to pound down a hole. If you live near the interstate, that's that loud, persistent clanging that you hear in the middle of the day. I have literally had sparks hit the roof of my car as welders work on projects overhead. Change is hard, and this is a lot of change, but this is ridiculous. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the deaths related to I-4 Ultimate. Since construction began a few years ago, four workers have died in separate accidents on the sites. Some have resulted in OSHA investigations, and some have resulted in the company having to pay. From summer of 2015 when the project began to summer of 2018, 475 damage claims have been filed against SGL Constructors, the main company working on Ultimate. Only 66 of those 475 were reimbursed. That's about 15%. The construction company says that the amount of claims, quote, has been minimal given the project's size and scope, end quote. But honestly, do we really need there to be an accident in order for there to be construction-related distress? Is not the fear of an accident a concern that should be on their minds? I love driving. I genuinely do it for fun, as strange as that may seem. But every time I hit the sudden swerve or encounter traffic in the tight confines of North Orlando or miss my exit because the roads have suddenly changed or 40 minutes are added to my travel because a random accident has blocked up the already clogged roads, isn't that distress? 
Isn't, isn't that a significant impact? The interstate was built to be a point of ease for Orlando as a means to smooth transit from one end to another. On the other sides of Orlando, approaching Daytona to the east or Tampa to the west, transit gets way, way easier, but Orlando is like this sticking point, like quicksand, pulling you in the more you resist. We're better than that. I took a trip to Atlanta this summer, a famously traffic-heavy city. When I hit the traffic, I was maybe 15 minutes from my location just north of downtown. It was a Friday evening, so those 15 minutes turned into an hour. But every other trip through downtown was easy, almost shockingly easy. Congestion is understood, it happens to every metropolitan, but Orlando's construction causes transit to be a gamble. Even on the smoothest of trips, with no traffic, going 70 miles an hour, hitting bumps launches you out of your seat, pushing you towards precarious stone medians as workers build whole roads overhead. The project was expected to be completed by 2021, but it was just pushed eight months further, and very well may be pushed again. Progress is essential, I'm not saying that it's not, but the cost of this progress is starting to take a toll, if you'll pardon the pun. With all this in mind, and all of the stress that we deal with driving I-4, I leave you with these thoughts on interstate travel, just three. First, the left lane is for passing. Second, use your turn signal. And three, there are other people on that road with you. Try to be kind. I-4 will certainly not be kind in return, so the least we could do is be that for each other. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving it a rating or a review. It really means the world to me, and little shows like this one grow when it gets more ratings. It only takes a second, and it, I cannot tell you how much it means to me. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me at Wait 5 Minutes Podcast on Instagram or at Wait 5 Minutes on Twitter. The links for that will be in the description below. If you have an idea for an episode, you can reach me at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. I'm very, very excited to hear from you. We're on Spotify now. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us on our Wait 5 Minutes website, or you can listen on Spotify, which is an awesome new thing. If you haven't done that and Spotify might be an easier app for you, please feel free to look it up. I'm very, very excited for the show to continue growing. Next week, there will be two episodes of Wait 5 Minutes, one on Tuesday for Tallahassee Tuesday, where I will be breaking down the difference between public and private education and what exactly a private school voucher is. Then on Friday, I'll be telling you about the leatherback turtles, which are currently undergoing their nesting season. All of the links that were used in the research can be found in the description below, along with all of the titles from Lobo Loco as well. Please consider sharing this show with a friend. I really hope that you are enjoying it and want to continue sharing these stories as much as I do. Until Tuesday, I'm Nick Del Sandro. This has been Wait 5 Minutes. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and drink more water. <laughs>